Life Christian Centre is a church located in the city of Adelaide. It is made up of people from different backgrounds and walks of life who have been transformed through a relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information, visit us online at www.life-church.com.au We have a guest speaker today, Dr. Alan Meyer, who is... He's part of us. We all know Dr. Alan Meyer, but for those that don't know, he's been, uh, he's an author. He's written so many teaching manuals. Um, uh, he was a pastor for 26 years at Care Force uh, in Melbourne, and uh, he's now concentrating on Life Keys Ministry, a Valiant Man and Search for Life, uh, courses that we've run here. And so he's really, I know that God's got a word for us today through him and he's been used by God and will be used by God. Let's give him a warm welcome. I want you to put your seatbelts on, fasten your seatbelts for Dr. Alan Meyer. Praise God. Well, the uh, worship team basically did my message for me so I could say amen and go home. Um, And Pastor Joe's not here. And Sister Lena is so much easier to relate to, so I can do anything I really want to, because um, Lena's very kind. She'd, just, she'd be very kind to me, let me do almost anything. But I'm here to honour you, and honour Joe, and honour this people, and honour the God who loves us, our Father, my Father, and your Father. And uh, I'm wearing a Revival T-shirt, partly because... Um, Our church in Melbourne is encountering a real touch of revival and it is my prayer that uh, God is starting things that will uh, be present in every church throughout this nation over the coming months and the coming years. Australia needs a great touch of God. Today it's my pleasure to talk to you about one of the great principles involved in the release of revival and that is the recovery and the uncovering and the, the, the discovering of the fact that the Father of Jesus is not only my Father, he's also your Father. Jesus said, I go to my Father and your Father. And I want to talk to you today about the attitude of heart that allows you to respond as a son of God. And that is not a gender-biased statement. One of the reasons the Bible emphasizes over and over again sonship is because in the culture of the New Testament and and in many cultures throughout the world, in fact, right through even into Western culture until very recently, women did not inherit. So you didn't speak simply about being children of God, you talked about being sons of God because it was the son was the only one in the family who would inherit. And it wasn't wasn't simply the fact that we were, uh, had a relationship with God, but that we had a relationship with God that made us heirs of everything he is and everything he has. And that's why the word sonship is emphasized in the scripture. Of all the words that he used to describe who God is, the word that was paramount in Jesus' mouth was the word father. And the relationship that epitomizes God's desire for you is the word son. Not simply child, but a son, one, a child who inherits 
everything that he has. Women just didn't inherit in those days. So the word son carries a connotation bigger than the word child. And we need to understand that as we come to seek God for revival in this country. Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, simply said, I need you to pray our Father. He could have referred to more than 88 different titles for God that are found in the Old Testament. He could have used any one of them, but he didn't. He used one word over and over again. He said, I've come to reveal to you the Father. He that has seen me has seen the Father. Go and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then the Apostles' Creed emphasized that I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Now, I'm not going to primarily talk to you about the fatherhood of God. I want to talk to you about the attitude of a son. What is the spirit of sonship? Because if God is a father, it calls for a corresponding response in your heart. Um, what is the essential nature of fatherhood? If we're going to describe God as a father, what are we talking about? What are we saying about God? Well, we're saying a number of things. I had a father. His name was Roger. Roger's gone home to be with Jesus. But he was my progenitor. He begot me. I am only alive because Roger Meyer existed. Had Roger Meyer not existed, I would not exist. And if God the Father did not exist, humanity would not exist because he has made us in his image. Our very origin and existence is possible because of his existence. That's why we exist. Secondly, because of that, he becomes the source of my capacity, my qualities, my giftedness and my nature. My dad was a teacher. Um, being, he used to say this, the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. And that is really true. I inherited 50% of my father's DNA. All I ever wanted to be in life was a teacher. And when God called me into ministry, I thought it was a terrible idea because I just wanted to be a teacher. It was just how my wiring works. It's how my brain works. It's how my personality works. I just want to explain things to people. And the capacities, the qualities, and the giftedness of my life is at least 50% of my dad, 50% of my mother. And if only my father had been Greg Norman, I would play better golf because I'd have 50% of his DNA. Um, I got what you get what you get. And then out of that, you have to do life. But with God as your father, it has imbued you with value and qualities and capacities that, that come from heaven itself. Being a human being is an extraordinary privilege. But with that extraordinary privilege of being a human being comes profound responsibility. And it's because God is father and has imbued. He has breathed into us the breath of life. And whatever we have that is commendable, we, are, it owe, we owe that to him as our father. Thirdly, a father is a provider. My dad used to go to market every week, bring home sackfuls of stuff from the Victoria market because he fed us, he supported us, he supplied us. My dad was the source of my provision. God is the source of your provision. He is also the founder. We talk about someone being the father of Melbourne, the father of Adelaide, the father of engineering, because the whole thing really began with one individual. The entire world, the human race, uh, was founded and established by God. Your reason for being 
is not found in a book somewhere, but in the fact that God is your Father. Your reason for existence was founded on the fact that He is eternal and He's looking for an eternal family. He is the founder of your reason for being. Fathers also, if they do their job well, are affirmers. Jesus heard the sound of his father on the day of his baptism. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The father was the source of Jesus' confidence. And when fathers do their job really well in this life, they can become the foundation of children's confidence because they find in their father, rather than someone that they're terrified of or disappointed with, someone who affirms them, strengthens them, and encourages them because it's your dad who approves, who authorizes, and then becomes a source of your confidence. Dad, can I borrow the car? Well, if dad will give you the keys to the car, there is a degree of privilege that goes with that. He authorizes the use of his stuff, and that's exactly how God wants you to begin to see your Christianity as the one who authorizes you to see heaven spread amongst the people of the earth and then finally a father is a teacher he's a coach he's one who prepares you for destiny that's if he does his job well he instructs and he trains and therefore my dad can become the source of my journey that's what it means to say that someone is your father and if we do that I need to now I could do a different message and that is um, how to get healed when any earthly father hasn't lived up to all of that none of us do the reality is we are imperfect fathers and that creates challenges for children but that's not the focus of my message today you have to be glad you don't hear that message today i want to talk to you about the, the nature of the response here is someone who is your progenitor he's the the source of your existence he is the source of your nature and your giftedness and your qualities he's the source of your provision He's the source of your reason for being. He's the source of confidence if you understand him. And he's the source of the journey, the track you are taking in life because he's a teacher and a trainer. How do I respond to that? What's he looking for in me? What, what, do, what does he need to find in me for all of that to be real and true and uh, an experience in my life? Uh, that's called the spirit of a son. The spirit of sonship. Every um, every male needs to learn from women in his life how to become the bride of Christ. Every woman needs to learn from men how to behave like a son. We have to learn from one another in our walk with God because there are four mindsets that stand in contradiction to that. You can have a relationship with God, but you relate like a slave. You don't relate like a son. You don't re uh, relate like a son. You relate like a slave. And the essence of relating to God like a slave is that it's filled with fear and it's all about the severity and it's about fearing displeasure and punishment and it's all bitter toil because it's just so hard to relate to someone when you have the spirit of a slave. The way you see everything is through the lens of toil and trouble and displeasure uh, and if that's how it is, God wants to heal you because that's... That will, that will rob you of the life of Christ. Christ didn't come to draw you into the life of a slave. He didn't send the spirit into your hearts to, to bring the spirit of slavery where you're flogging it out for God. 
I'm flogging it out. Looking at Jesus, I'm doing it, Lord, I'm doing it. You see, I'm doing it, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it, I'm serving, I'm giving. You see, Lord? You see, that's the spirit of a slave. It's filled with toil and severity and displeasure and feelings about punishment. And that is not God's heart for you. If that's there, you've just got to be honest about it and say, oh, that needs help because that, that'll rob you all the days of your life. The second way you could relate to a father is you could relate as a hireling. And it's easy to do that too. It's not as bad as slavery, but it's where you see limits to your loyalty. Anybody who sees themselves uh, as a hireling, someone who's on the paid staff of uh, the father. It's just a different way of viewing. You see him as an employer. You see him, well, you know, uh, I've got responsibilities, but after all, you know, there's only eight hours uh, in, in a day that you ought to be working and there's limits to loyalty and there's, I clock on and I clock off and there are times when he has my heart and there's times when it's all mine. I mean, that's your time, this is my time. Um, and then the question is, well, what's in it for me? I mean, if I'm going to do what you say, what's the outcome? What's the pay? And when we view our relationship with God like that, it's, it's like being a paid servant and it'll rob you of the spirit of a son. Third way you could relate to God is you could relate as an orphan. And the orphans even in many ways look worse than a slave. Because even slaves could feel like they were cared for. In fact, the prodigal son said, which of my father's servants, you know, don't live well and eat well. So if the father cared for his, his servants, um, but the prodigal son was more like an orphan. Uh, an orphan is someone who feels uncared for. You know, I know God is there and I know he's powerful, but he doesn't care about me. I mean, he doesn't even know my name. He wouldn't know where I am. He wouldn't know what's happening to me. Uh, I feel dispossessed. I don't feel like I'm an inheritor of anything. I feel like I own nothing. I feel like I've been abandoned in my life. I'm powerless. I'm alone. That's the spirit of an orphan. And if you identify that in yourself, it's not a rebuke. It's just so I need to know where I, where I am because when there's a lot of those emotions and feelings um, God wants to minister to you. The Spirit of God wants to minister to you because the Spirit He's sending into your heart is not the spirit of slavery to fear all over again. It's a spirit that cries, Abba, Father. It's a spirit that releases you into the heart of sonship and that's simply not there in an orphan. And it's not a rebuke, it's a call to discover something you've maybe never experienced before. Because there's a profound difference in the way life works when you feel like an orphan in the challenges of life. And then finally, you can relate to God uh, as a criminal. The, the mindset of the criminal is, what's the law? Um, how far can I go before I break the law? How far can I go before I cross the line and I enter into crime and punishment? Because I know, like the man, the, the, the servant to whom the father gave a talent and said, I know you're a hard man. And I know you reap where you don't sow. And so I'm pretty concerned about how I manage this because I wouldn't want to cross the line and end up being a criminal. I want to love to know where the line is so I don't cross the line and I don't end up in the bad books. That's a mindset of a criminal. Sons don't think that way. Um, they're not into the issue of seeing God as their judge, uh, as seeing themselves trying to escape from a prison or from a sentence or from execution. And though there'd be plenty, I started out there as a young Lutheran when God called me and tried to figure out how can I disobey God and still get to heaven. That's the mindset of a criminal. Um, I don't want to do what God says, but how, how, how Christian do I have to be to escape from hell? 
And that's the mindset of a criminal. Um, how many boxes do I have to tick so I don't go to hell? If that's, if that's there, just be honest. And so, well, that's really, that's where my, my heart is. I'm just trying to tick enough boxes so I don't go to hell. That is not the spirit of a son. That's not the spirit that knows he's inherited uh, all things. The, the, it's not the heart of a woman who knows she's, she's a son. She's inheriting something here. I'm not just uh, a child. I am an inheriting child. And that's the desire that God wants every one of his people to have. Now, Jesus is the, is the exemplar. When you come to Jesus, you see what sonship looks like. You see the spirit of a son exemplified in Jesus. And you see it from childhood. You'll see, for example, in the, in the heart of someone who has embraced God as their father, there is an attention and a devotion to what daddy's seeking to do and what he's on about. I want to understand my dad because my desire is to cooperate with him. I just like to be part of what daddy's doing. And so by the age of 12, you hear Jesus saying uh, in the temple, having disappeared from his own earthly mum and dad for three days, they find him in the temple. And then when they turn, they say, why have you treated us like this? He said, well, didn't you realize I must be about my father's business? Didn't you know I'm, I'm consumed with my father? And my father's got, got a problem here. These dudes, I mean, the temple, these dudes are trying to explain dad and they don't even know who he is. These guys, have got, they need help. I've got to be about my dad's business. So I'm here answering their questions for them at the age of 12 because they're as lost as a goose in a hailstorm. <laughs> Jesus would say, I only do those things I see the father doing. Well, why would I bother with anything else? It's what dad's doing. That's where my heart is because he's my father and I'm his son. So we're doing this stuff together. There's a sense of partnership when you're engaging with God as a son. Then secondly, identity. Oh, as I deal with men in the Valiant Man course and they've got themselves hooked up and caught with pornography and they begin to see themselves as half animal and half devil. That's the way they see themselves because they realize that their, their, their fleshly appetites are really have been stirred and stirred in such an unhelpful way. And the inner part of them that knows, knows God, they're disgusted at themselves and they, they despise themselves, hate themselves. One of the biggest transformations when people are coming out of addictions is you've got to begin to appreciate that escaping addiction is not just about exercising willpower. It's about how you see yourself. What are you? Because if you keep seeing yourself as a half devil, half animal, you will behave like a half devil, half animal. You've got to know Christ has elevated you. You're seated with Christ in heavenly places. You're a son who's, a, who's an heir of all things. What you do is just so contradictory to who you are. And that begins to create a distinction between behavior and standing. And that's the first step in really seeing someone out come over, get over their addiction. Jesus put it this way. He said, he who has seen me has seen the father because I and the father are one. And increasingly, the power for a Christian to live outside of the brokenness of this world is an increasing awareness. That's not who I am. I'm not an angry, uh, unkind. I'm not someone who yells at their husband or their wife. I'm not someone who steals. Or, that's not who I am. I'm a son of the Father. I only do those things. Whoever, whoever's seen me is seeing an emerging son. And it is a powerful 
motivation for New Testament living. And of course, there's the issue of obedience. The spirit of a son just wants to know what dad wants. Uh, the parable of two sons. Father comes to his son and says, boy, go to my vineyard. He says, I'm not doing it. And off he goes. But later on, he says, mm, I, should have, I should never have said that. And off he goes to the vineyard. That's my story. He goes to the second son. Son, go to my vineyard. He said, yes, I'll go. And then afterwards, he doesn't go. And Jesus then asks the question, which one of those two guys did the will of the father? The, the one who went to the vineyard, of course, because sonship involves obedience. But it's not the obedience of a slave. It's not the obedience of a criminal. It's not the obedience of an orphan who's hoping to win someone's favour. You have the favour and something in you says, uh, I've come to do thy will, O God, a body you have prepared for me. You gave me a body in order to honour you. Take my body and let it be honourable to you. One of the things that I discovered fairly early in my ministry was the power of leading people quickly to obedience because as they respond with obedience, they begin to develop the spirit of a son. I'll never forget the first time I began to understand the problem with delaying baptism. I don't know if every one of you who believe in Jesus have been baptised, but I began to realise Jesus, when his, fir his first commandment, go make disciples, baptising, that's like a first step. And often you find people that come to an altar call and say yes to Jesus, but they've never followed on with obedience. And you begin to develop a different spirit when you delay obedience to a call. Uh, I'll never forget going to um, the house of a guy who was an alcoholic. And he'd been coming to the church for six months and he answered an altar call. And I think I'd be about the third night I was trying to explain to him. His big, his big complaint to me was this. He said, Al, I've tried Christianity and it's not working. I said, what do you mean? He said, I came to the front. I said the sinner's prayer. I did all of that and I'm no different. And I was about the third night. I said, you haven't obeyed Jesus at all. He said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you might have come to the front and said the prayer, but that's not in the Bible. Jesus did not say, if he, he that comes to the front and says a prayer will be my disciple. He said, he that follows me will be my disciple. He said, well, yeah. And I said, well, we might have done you a disservice because you signed a decision card and here you are six months down the track. You've never followed through on that. What do you mean? Well, Jesus said, repent and be baptised. Do you realise that baptism is an act of obedience that demonstrates you actually heard what Jesus was saying to you? And he said, well, uh, uh, well what am I supposed to do? I said, what you're supposed to do as a son is obey. You know, you, you've just decided not to obey. You thought, well, I took a step, that's enough. No, it's not. Discipleship is a pathway that doesn't stop. And you stopped at the first hurdle. And he said, well, what should I do? I said, I know what you should do. If you really mean what you said to Jesus, you need to repent and be baptised. That's just the earliest of steps. And then begin to uh, learn everything that he's ever commanded and follow that too. And he said, well, if that's the truth, he said, well, I do want to follow Jesus. I said, well, let's do it. And we went straight in the bath and I baptised him with all his clothes on. <laughs> that night, that night, that grip of alcohol on his life broke and left him. And he discovered that the spirit of a son is the spirit of obedience because loving God is a decision, not a feeling. He that loves me keeps my commandments and as you take steps of obedience, you walk into your sonship, but not as a slave, not as an orphan, not as a criminal, and not as a hireling, but in the spirit of a son. And Jesus said, obedience, honour, 
Honor is one of the marks of sonship. Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father which is art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Let me honor your name. And then he added to that honor zeal. The Bible says he came storming into that temple with a whip in his hand and started to drive out the, the animals and turn the tables over. And the Bible says he cried out, How dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace? This was supposed to be a place of prayer for all nations. You've made it a den of thieves. And the Bible says they remembered afterwards that the Bible had said, zeal for your house has eaten me up. That's the spirit of a son. You have a zeal for God's house. And then the spirit of a son is that you know you have received and are in the receipt of an inheritance. It won't be fulfilled until you get your new body. But already you have become seated with Christ in heavenly places and an inheritance is laid at your hands. The Bible says, since you are a son, God has made you an heir. And with that comes authority. The Bible says in Galatians 4 verse 5, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Again, not a gendered term, simply to say you might receive the full rights of a child who inherits, who inherits from God an inheritance that he has preserved for you in heaven and nobody can take it from you. Now, all of that is brilliant stuff. It's wonderful. Now we add to the, the challenge, the challenge. And the challenge is the issue of sonship also engages with discipline. And here... Uh, we, we, we have to deal with the tension in being a son of God. The fact that with being a son, whether you're a male or a female, means that you are encountering the discipline of God. Because the fact is the father is a teacher. The father in heaven is the everlasting father with an everlasting purpose. And one of the calls on a father's life is to prepare children for their destiny. That's part of a father's calling. And this is where the paradox, paradox hits us because uh, it is not easy to both understand and embrace the spirit of sonship when there's a fracture in our human souls that views discipline through a pair of glasses that is not really very helpful. Let me read to you a description of what sonship looks like in Hebrews chapter 12. It'll be on the screen for you. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Now, today you've got an adorator. That may not be true any longer. I had a father who disciplined me and sometimes he did it appropriately and sometimes he did it inappropriately. And one of the most damaging experiences in my relationship with my dad was a time when he inappropriately disciplined me. 
he belted the daylights out of me for buying a bicycle tube with my own money. And I've shared that in a different story. I don't intend to unpack that today. But the reality is it damaged my relationship with my father. And every one of us have had experiences in our life that can have damaged our perception of what discipline is all about. And that one damaged mine. Um, he disciplined me for a good reason. I didn't understand it at the time. And the fact is that my dad was raised in the depression years and for someone to take money and buy a bicycle tube when they could have fixed the old one, uh, where they could have put a patch on the, on the other one, was, uh, was a, such an inappropriate expenditure that he, he just lost his temper and gave me a belting. But he never explained that to me. He never said to me, Al, the reason I'm about to nearly kill you is because you should have fixed the other tube. All he did was belt the daylights out of me. And I thought, what the heck's wrong with you? Are you mentally unbalanced or something? Because I bought a bicycle tube, Dad. I wasn't smoking the tube, Dad. I, I fixed it. I got a new tube. And I, I did it with my own money. Um, God wants you to know he will never, ever, ever discipline you without the, most, the purest of motives. Listen to what he says. Uh, for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. Sometimes it wasn't the best. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. God has such a huge vision of who you are. He's got such a huge vision of where you will, are headed, what, what your calling is, what eternity means with you wrapped up in it. He will discipline you with that in mind. And the problem is we don't always see that. Just like I didn't understand what my dad was on about and it affected my relationship with him. God has the most, the purest of motives. His desire is to prepare you to share his holiness so that instead of being shocked and appalled in his presence, you're filled with unmitigated delight because he has developed you in the purest and most extraordinary and wonderful fashion. It's his great goal. It's like the kid who says to his dad, Dad, I don't want to go to school. Why not, son? Well, Dad, I, I, I want to be a cowboy. Yeah, and cowboys don't do maths and geometry and geography, Dad. They just ride horses and shoot guns. Dad, I want to be a cowboy. The father who says, oh, fair enough, son, I didn't realise you had a, this amazing dream. Of course, well, we don't stay home from school. Feel free. You know, ride your bike, uh, your, your, your trikey thing up and down. Get, get plenty of practice. Because I didn't realise what a great vision you had for your life. If no father with any brains is going to say that. He's going to say, well, that's a wonderful vision, son. Maybe you will be a cowboy, but right now you're going to school. Okay, get your bag. Go up there, go, oh, whack, whack. Oh, you know, although we'll go to jail for that now. But you're going to school whether you like it or not because that may not be your future. But God sees your future. God sees eternity with you in it. He sees you glowing. He sees the magnificence of who he has created you to be. And as a result, he is working on your pathway through life continually. He does it for every one of his children. He goes on, for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. He's got such a vision for your life. Now here's where the problem arises. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Nobody likes discipline. I don't like discipline. You don't like discipline. Nobody likes discipline. Let's be honest about it. But he goes on. But, there's a but, later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it because God's not on about punishment, he's on about training. And that's our problem. 
We, don't, we just don't see it that way. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. There are some of you here today. Your hands are drooping and your knees are weak and you're not ready for revival. And the reason you're not ready for the right revival is you are disappointed with God. You're disappointed with the way life is unfolding. You don't see much sonship or glory attached to it. And in your heart, you start to wonder, you know, uh, am I wasting my time? Does God like other people a lot more than he likes me? He seems to do stuff. I often ask myself that because I don't tend to touch physical healing as easily as some other people do. And uh, there are times when with my creaky body and get things getting older and falling off, you start thinking, you know, pretty soon I'll be dead and I'll need a brand new body. But Lord, can you help me get this thing to the line? Um, other people, well, then you can begin. So he, done, he, he, he likes other people more than he likes me. I, I, don't, I don't understand why my pathway is different somebody, from somebody else's pathway. And here's the challenge. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. There is a danger that you come lamely into a moment of revival and you're not ready for it because you're still unhappy with God. You've still got fears and you've still got suspicions and you don't feel like a son, you feel more like an orphan. You feel a little bit more, more like, like a hireling or maybe a slave or, or even worse, a criminal trying to tick boxes just enough to get across the line. And by the grace of God, he has come to you today to say, I want my church revived. And the key to the revival of church is that my people see that they are sons in my house and they relate to me as father. He is my father. He is your father. He's the same father that Jesus says, I've come to reveal to you the father. The father of Jesus is my father. The father of Jesus is your father. But when your heart's not in that place, it damages your walk. And you're not ready for revival. And God needs to visit us and say, I want to I heal you. I, I don't want stuff out of joint. I want you healed and I want you well. I want you full of faith and, and trusting that I'm with you and I'm for you. Uh, and the biggest problem, of course, is that discipline involves suffering and nobody willingly signs up for suffering, not even Jesus. In that garden of Gethsemane, as he stood on the edge of his season of profound suffering. He had suffered plenty. The Bible says he suffered at the hands of contradiction. He suffered all through his life. His mother uh, being viewed as a, the, the, the child, he's the, the bastard child of a, of a girl who got pregnant before she's married. His entire life is wrapped up in contradictions. But it was the final, the final moment as he stood on the edge of suffering. Nobody signs up for suffering uh, with a lot of happiness in their heart. And Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said, Dad, is it possible that this cup might pass? Uh, and there'll be some of you sitting here today that wish that cups that had come your way, cups from which you have drunk, you wish it would have passed away, your way. And because it didn't, because God didn't remove the cup, he had you drink from it. It's damaged your relationship with him. And today he's saying, I want to remove that damage. I want, you to, I want you to understand what was in my heart. You did drink of a cup. You, you, you didn't want to, but you did. Now I need to, I need to remove 
the damage from you because I need you to see yourself as a son. I need you to see yourself as you really are. I need your heart to be with me because revival is going to be the ministry of sons, not the ministry of orphans, not the ministry of criminals who are trying harder to produce a better church, but sons uh, who glow in the midst of their redemption. What time do we finish this? Because I don't want to go too long. Pat? 11.30, right. We've, we've got a challenge, but we're going to get there. Here's the problem. The fall has fractured our heart. And in the fall of our brokenness, we perceive God with suspicion. The Bible says God came into the garden and Adam heard him come and he ran and he hid. And had God not gone looking for him, he would never have gone looking for God. He would be quite happy to be left alone. He would, well, maybe not happy, but he would have been left alone uh, and persisted in his aloneness. But God went looking for him and you're only here because God went looking for you. He went looking for you and drew you to himself. But part of the damage of the fall is our tendency to be suspicious over the motives of God. Mistrust and suspicion are the bedfellows of unbelief. And there is a fraction, fracture in the soul that perceives any disciplinary work by God in our life as punishment. We see it through the lenses of punishment. Why would he do that to me? We see it as displeasure. We see it as rejection. God didn't hear my prayer. Oh, he heard your prayer. Just like he heard the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. But he said, son, drink the cup. Drink the cup, son. Drink the cup. We see it as proof of failure. If only I'd believed better, I would never have had to drink of that cup. If only, you know, I'd said the prayer right or had the right person lay hands on me, I wouldn't have drunk of that cup. I would have had a better outcome. It's a proof of my failure. I'm not a very good son of God. I don't really know how to touch God. It's proof I must have done something wrong. It's proof of divine retribution. God's settling the scores. He, I always knew he wasn't really happy with me. He's happy with some people, but he's not really happy with me. And I, I, I know he, he settled the score. He said, oh, you didn't do the right thing. Okay, right, I'll fix you up. I'll give you one here. I'll break your arms and legs. That's right, I'll fix you up. <clears throat> and I want to tell you that one of the most important moments in my life was when I survived an experience of fatherhood that hurt me. Um, I was called into ministry by Pastor Hal Oxley. I saw him as a hero. My very first day of full-time ministry, I, we had Derek Prince with us for an entire week. And in his office, after we'd spent the morning with Derek Prince and he talked about the father-son relationship, I went to my senior pastor and I said to him, Pastor Hal, I just want you to know, I see you as a father and I want to serve you like a son. I had no idea what that would set me up for. Because, you see, he was a good father. He disciplined. He used to keep white cards. Every time he saw you do something that wasn't helpful for your ministry, he'd write it down. There'd come a point where you'd come into his office, he'd have an appointment with you, and all these white cards would be out on the desk. And he'd go through the stuff that he'd written down, and he would correct you. And I'll never forget the first time it happened. I thought, oh, that hurt. You know, my dad told me, my dad told me, he didn't tick me off, he corrected me. He was, it was done graciously, and it was totally true. It was great. And we had a good conversation about it, and then he prayed over me, but it hurt. Oh, my dad corrected me. Well, that happened a few times until one time he called me into his office and he stood me down from ministry. Because I'd had words in the eldership meeting the night before, and I'd told them that I didn't like the discipline policy in the school. And I'd been very confronting over it. And uh, he called me in the office, we had a long three-hour talk, and he told me I'd been rude and I'd been um, unhelpful. 
And then a month or two later, after he stood me down from ministry, he said, I want you to go into the school, step out of ministry. And it hurt like you can't imagine. Because my father had disciplined me. And I felt my emotions spiralling down. I felt that dreadful feeling of alienation. My father doesn't love me. My father doesn't love me. And as I felt my emotions spiralling down, I realised that I was in a very dangerous position. And right at that time, I got an invitation to go be a pastor in someone else's church. And I could have grabbed that and said, oh, well, see, you don't appreciate my skills and abilities, but other people do. And I could have run away from my father and go take something else and headed off out of the house and done my own thing. But when I got that, I laughed and I said, you know, I don't think this is God. I told my pastor, uh, I, I saw him like my father and I wanted to serve him like a son. What are you going to do when daddy gives you a belting? I'm going to honour him. And uh, well, I made a decision, I'm not leaving, I'm not running off, I'm going to stay. Uh, I don't think he stood me down because he hates me. I think he stood me down because he loves me and he's really, doing, he's really doing what he believes God wants him to do. Now put me aside for one moment. And then I made one of the best decisions in my life. I realised if I remained the way I was, I would never be useful to God for the rest of my life. I had this gut feeling of being abandoned and wounded and overlooked and rejected. It was, I, was, I was hurt. And I made a decision, I have to change. And the only thing I knew to do was to fast and pray. And so I made a decision to fast and pray for 21 days. I said to God on a Friday night, I'll give you the next 21 days. I will not eat again for 21 days. You have my attention. And I st- my first day of fasting was on Saturday. I woke up the second day of my fasting and prayer. And God had filled my heart with love for hell love for the church, love for the ministry, love for Jesus, love for God. I was so full of love. I thought, why did I say 21 days? I should have said like, I should have said like three days because here I am. And I stuck with my promise. I fulfilled my promise. And I realized the problem is not out there. The problem is in here. I need the heart of a son. He filled me with love for my pastor. And out of that relationship, he remained my friend till the day he died, 40 years later. He died at 103. We were close. He was my father. He was my friend till the day he died. And that act of discipline changed my life because I decided not to run away like a hurt child, but to stay and heal my heart. And God so filled my heart with love. Every good thing I am living in today came out of that wounding experience. Every single bit. Now let me show you how that unfolded in Israel. I've got to truncate this, guys, so get with me. Uh, yeah, you'll be right from this one. Um, <clears throat> Listen to Israel express the spirit of a slave after God has delivered her from Egypt. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Moses said to Israel, you complained in your tents. God hates us. He hauled us out of Egypt in order to dump us among the Amorites, a death penalty for sure. How can we go up and take the land? We're trapped in a dead end. Our brothers took all the wind out of ourselves, telling us the people are bigger and stronger than we are. That is the spirit of a slave exemplified. I came out of slavery. God drew me out by his power. Why do you do that? Oh, he's just trying to kill me. No, that's, that's God, yeah. No, you yeah, can't trust God. He'll kill you. He'll give you a minimum chance. He'll drag you out in the wilderness. He'll kill you. That's what God's on about. But then God explains his own heart 
through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He said, you never understood my heart, did you? When I allowed you to go through those challenges. Deuteronomy 8, you shall remember all the ways which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry. He fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing didn't wear out, your foot didn't swell. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. I never did it to hurt you. I did it to build you and prepare you for a glory you just didn't fully understand. Now, we've got to bring this to right to an end. Listen to Jesus when he is tested. He's told by God at his baptism, you are my beloved son. The very next thing is he's driven out into the wilderness by the spirit to be tempted by the devil. Who does that to a son? The father who knows who his son is and what his son is called to do. And at the end of those 40 days, what does the devil come? What's the first thing out of his mouth? If you are a son. Why should you be hungry? Turn these stones into bread. No son should be feeling any challenges. No son should be hungry. Sons experience the glory. Where's your glory, buddy? 40 days of fasting and prayer in the wilderness and now you're hungry? Turn the rocks into bread if you're really a son. And Jesus took this very passage and he spoke it to the devil. Man shall not live. I know what happened to a son who didn't understand their father. They said to him, you hate us. My father doesn't hate me, he loves me. And he wants me to understand like everybody else that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I will not eat till he gives me bread. Now today I want to challenge you. We've got about a minute left and the band's going to come. We're going to take a couple of minutes because I want to come down here and I want to pray. You've heard enough to kind of know where your heart is. Do you rest easily with seeing yourself as a son, an inheritor, the glory of God at work in your life? Or would you be honest enough to say, I have had, I, drink, I drank from a cup and it hurt me. And I felt hurt and overlooked and unsure from that day to this. Did you lose a child? Did you lose a marriage? Did you lose a business? Did you lose your health? What was it? What was the thing you drank of that, that caused you to stumble and feel, I don't know if I could rightly call myself a son. If that's you, as we come to the close, you've got someone else close, I want to come down here. Come out of your seat. Come, let me lay my hands upon you and pray. I understand. I understand the struggle. But I also understand the way forward. And today, God would like to remove from you the stumbling block and call you into the glory of your sonship again. Follow me, Jesus said. I want to reveal to you the Father. Father, I pray that as I step off this stage, those who know they need your help today, let them come. Let them come. Let the glory of the Lord touch them today. And as we worship, let the Spirit of the Lord do His work in Jesus' name.